Good morning, church. The scripture this morning comes from Luke chapter 1, verses 67 through 79. It's Zechariah's prophecy. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hates us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in the darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, everyone. Thanks, everyone, for coming this morning joining us online as well. Let's start with a quick word of prayer. Father, thank you for this morning where we are able to remember the peace that you have bought for us in Christ. Focus our minds and our hearts this morning on what you're saying to us through your word, what you've been saying to your people all through the years since the beginning of time about your goodness. And Father, we also lift up to you this morning our brother Russell, who's in hospital. We pray that you would bring peace and comfort to his heart and soul this morning, bring healing to his body, to his mind as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what, what comes into your mind when you think of the word peace? One thing that comes into my mind is two opposing armies battling for days and weeks on end, getting nowhere in the process. Nobody is really accomplishing anything other than taking human life. Then the two generals approach each other across the battlefield, have some negotiations, and declare that the two nations will live in peace. They may have boundaries next to each other, and they may seek to tolerate each other for a time, they may even seek to trade with one another and enjoy some of the benefits of mutual trust. But, as good as this seems, we know this can only be temporary. We know that wise leaders pass on, and more ambitious and reckless ones take their place, often leading to a breach of trust between nations, where the original terms of peace go out the window. This devastating picture of nations at war against each other is something that has been all too common in our world throughout history and often hasn't resulted in peace. 
but it is also a picture of a much more important and consequential war that has been unbelievably widespread and deadly throughout history. And it's the war that we humans have been fighting with God since the beginning of time. It's called sin. The important question we ask is this. If God is who he says he is, the eternal, powerful creator God, who demands holiness from all people, how do we make peace with him and make sure it lasts? I think today's passage points to the answer. So let's first look at a bit of background for this passage. This comes at a time in Israel's history when they have not heard from God for 400 years. God brought a few groups of Israelites back from exile around 500 BC. He then prompted them to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple, and over the years they made some progress. But then they didn't hear from him through his prophets for a very, very long time. At the time of this story in Luke chapter 1, things for the Jewish people were looking bad. The Romans had already come in and taken over the region and were oppressing the Jewish people. To add to this, the Pharisees, the top-notch Jewish elite of the day, held a lot of power and lorded it over the people. There may not have been a big war going on, but the Jewish people were definitely not at peace with the political and religious situation going on around them. Luke begins his gospel story by telling that one day, around the year zero, an older man named Zechariah had his turn to serve as priest in the temple in Jerusalem. There could be no way he was going to expect what was going to happen next. Suddenly, an angel appears beside the altar. Wow, Zechariah was understandably afraid. The angel then told him that his wife, Elizabeth, herself pretty elderly at this point, would have a son who would be one of a kind and do marvelous things before God and people, preparing the way for the Lord's coming. And they were to call him John. Long story short, Zechariah and his lack of faith questioned the angel about all this at first. And so the angel told him he wouldn't be able to speak until the baby was born. What a shame. But regardless, God was true to his word, and Elizabeth became pregnant. Following this, we read an in-between story where Mary, the mother of Jesus, visits Elizabeth, and they have a very joyful reunion. Mary bursts out in a song of her own about all that she is humbled to be a part of, and God's great rescue story. Eventually, the time came for Zechariah and Elizabeth's baby to be born, and they had a baby boy. People started pressuring Elizabeth to call him after his father, but she was firm in saying that his name would be John, as the angel said. And then, hilariously, they turned to silent Zechariah and pressured him to reveal his thoughts on the matter, and marvelously, he also put his foot down and wrote on a tablet, which was basically the iPad 0.1, that he would be called John. This is a fantastic change of heart on his part, as he was skeptical about the power of God and the words of the angel at first. But after having about nine months to think without speaking, he came through to show his trust in God and his plans and did as he was told. 
And wouldn't it be beneficial for some, if not all of us, to be prevented from speaking for about nine months so that we could take a bit of time to think things through? Anyways, after seeing and hearing all of this, the people were astounded. They wondered what this child John would become, and they knew that God was with him. What a jolt of adrenaline they must have felt in the midst of the depressing situation that was going that was going on around them and that they have, had been experiencing in their lives up until then. And now we have some of the context for this poem that Zechariah speaks with such uplifting and soul-stirring language. Imagine not being able to speak for nine months and then spouting off such a beautifully encouraging bit of thanksgiving to God. It seems as though God had been doing a good work in him during that time for him to speak like this. Does, does some of this not sound familiar to us in some way? Isn't it in some of the most frustrating and dark moments of our lives that God reveals himself to us in power and grows us in his grace and we come out the other side changed? Zechariah is showing that he's beginning to grasp the true gospel of God, blessing God for what he does and talking like he's starting to understand that all of history points towards God's history story of salvation. The Holy Spirit was speaking through him powerfully, just like he had done through Elizabeth and eventually would do through John. Zechariah was overjoyed for the good plans that God had in store and was overjoyed that his little baby boy would be a part of it. One very important thing to note is that most Jewish people at the time of Zechariah, and also for centuries before, would have understood that the purpose of the Messiah's coming was to save Israel from oppression and injustice from within and from other nations around them. Many thought he would be a strong military figure capable of subduing any enemy before him, kind of like an upgrade from King David. They thought he would bring family blessing and material prosperity to Israel, like never seen or experienced before. They thought he would outdo himself in reference to his mighty works done in the past, where he first brought them out of slavery in Egypt and later brought them out from captivity in Babylon and in other nations. They thought he would bring them worldly peace, of course, we can understand why the Jewish people would think this on a basic level, because a lot of Old Testament passages, especially in the prophets, they seem to be referring to a future peace and prosperity for Israel. Even when we read some of the lines from Zechariah, when he talks about God's good pl plans for Israel, though he seems to be enlightened somewhat about God's larger plans, he seems to be referring mostly to God's plan to save Israel from its physical enemies and those on earth who oppress them. And it's true, God did promise all these things to, for Israel if they obeyed him. And here's where the mystery of the gospel lies. When God created the world and when he created the first humans, he made no mistakes. All that he created, he said, was good or very good in the case of Adam and Eve. He created them to be in fellowship with him, to walk through life with him, and to enjoy living under his perfect and wise rule. 
But when tempted by the devil, they gave in, thinking they didn't need God and that they could rule themselves. Adam and Eve turned away from God's rule and his plan toward their own desires. This is called sin. As a result, they were sent from God's presence and were doomed to die. This is how it started that humans came to be at war with God. And we see it all through the Old Testament, right from the start of Genesis. Later in Genesis, we see that God had mercy on a man called Abraham and his family, who eventually became the nation of Israel. Later, God laid out for this nation rules and laws to govern how they were to love him and each other, and how to love foreign, the foreign people who lived among them. God himself had planned to live among them and bless the world through Abraham's family. But he called them to be holy as he was holy. If they obeyed him, they were promised blessing. If they disobeyed, they were promised curses. But when they failed, they were given the ability to atone for their failures with sacrifices and offerings. But still, sometimes they failed so much that they were tragic consequences, even mass deaths. They were not perfect, and it showed up often. They may have been harassed by the other nations around them or by unjust rulers within, but these effects were caused, often caused by their own sin and disobedience, choosing to be their own rulers rather than letting their perfect, loving God rule them. What the people of Israel often failed to realize all through the years was that the main issue wasn't with the nations around them or with unjust leadership within, it was in their own hearts. They all wanted to be their own gods. They all wanted to follow their own plan. And this put them at war with their creator God. And they needed peace with him. To add to this, we saw in the story of Adam and Eve, there were evil forces in the world who hated all that God created, most of all humanity. These external spiritual enemies of the Israelites were, that they faced were much more cunning crafty, brutal, and relentless than any oppressing foreign regime could possibly be. They needed peace from these enemies too. And so going forward again to Zechariah's time, any Jewish person who would have heard about Zechariah's poem would have been filled with awe and wonder at what God was about to do. But sadly, many would have had in their minds that God's salvation with the coming Messiah was based around the need for political freedom, not for their need for peace with God himself and peace from their mortal spiritual enemies. Let's look at what the poem's really saying and how it applies to the Jewish people at that time and to every generation of people around the world since that time, including us. First of all, we see language in the poem that shows that God is the author and initiator of the salvation of the human soul. We see action words throughout, like he visited, redeemed, raised up, spoke, show mercy, remember, swore, and grant. God is a God of action. He's not passive. And when it comes to humanity being saved, God made the first move in his great love. 
When Zechariah talks in verse 71 about Israel being saved from their enemies and from the hand of all who hate them, we know he may not have fully grasped what he was talking about. This salvation refers to something much deeper than freedom from the Romans. Of course, ultimately it does include salvation from worldly oppression and injustice. But in reality, the salvation here is from their deadliest enemies, sin and death, and the spiritual powers of, in the heavenly places who hate them. The result of this salvation would be to serve God without fear, as we see in verses 74 and 75, which is what God originally intended. God had promised this extravagant salvation from the beginning, as he told Adam and Eve right after they sinned that the devil would be defeated. And reading through the Old Testament, we see that he comforts his people often with his plans to save them. But God doesn't secure the salvation of his people just by pushing a button and wiping away all their sin as if it didn't matter, because he's a God of justice. We see in verse 69 that God raised up a horn of salvation. The people themselves couldn't be perfectly obedient to God, but someone had to be. Otherwise, they would all be destroyed forever. This is why this passage is so key at Christmas time, because Zechariah was talking about the Messiah, Jesus, who would be God in human form, come to redeem his people. Jesus was the horn of salvation that God raised up. The horn referred to here is the horn of an animal, a symbol of its power and strength. Jesus was from the line of mighty King David, yet he was the greater David in every way. But Jesus would not come to bring peace to the physical nation of Israel. Rather, he would come to bring peace to their souls, an eternal peace that they needed, a peace with God their Father. And he would do it by offering his life as a sacrifice. He who'd never sinned gave up his life for the sinful to satisfy God's wrath. Switching now <clears throat> and thinking briefly about the life and purpose of John the Baptist, which is what Zechariah transitions into in verse 76, an obvious question that comes up and came up for me as I was reading is, why did John have to come before Jesus? Why was there someone to prepare the way for the Messiah? As we've discussed, the Jewish people at the time didn't have their minds in the right place on the purpose of the Messiah. They had substituted the eternal, soul-transforming salvation with an earthly, political salvation. John needed to come and prepare the way for Jesus, the Messiah, so that people would know how to receive him. They were to receive him not as a great military leader, though the irony is that he could have come and wiped them all out, all the armies on the face of the earth with the snap of his finger. But he didn't do that. They were to receive him rather as a humble servant who came to forgive and bless and redeem and restore. Jesus came to be the image of the invisible God as a weak and lowly human to two weak and lowly humans on earth. The people needed John to remind them of what God had been telling them all through the years, that what they really needed was their own hearts changed. 
You see, Jesus would have meant nothing to the Jewish people if they didn't realize their utter need for him to forgive and restore their rock-hard hearts. Just as a great king or queen has someone go before them to prepare the people to welcome them, so the king of the universe had someone sent by God to go before him so that his people would be prepared for him. The prophet of the Most High prepared the way for the Son of the Most High. Look at the imagery that Zechariah uses to describe the present and future state of the Jewish people at the time in the contrast of sunrises and light and darkness in verses 78 and 79. The Messiah would be the sunrise to greet them from on high, an image that was used by some of the prophets from the Old Testament. It wasn't just referring to the Jewish people having the light dawn on them. This was good news for the whole world as well. Jesus would be the great light to shine in their darkness, the shadow of death that they dwelt in because of the depth of their sin and their shame and their guilt. And he would guide them into true peace and eternal peace with God. Just picture the hope that comes with a bright light that shines in utter darkness. You might be blinded by it, but you are drawn to it, moved by it, and encouraged by it. And this light-filled peace with God in Christ would not be just a vague concept, but an abundant, dynamic relationship with the generous Father God, the creator of all life. He loves the human soul with such a fierce intensity that nothing can overcome it. The ancient Israelites needed this peace. The Jewish people in Zechariah's time needed this peace. And everyone all over the world for the past 2,000 years have needed this peace, Christ Jesus. And so do we. And here we are today as we realize that the light of Jesus has dawned in the world. He was born, he lived, he died, and he rose again. And he's in heaven now with the Father God. So what does this actually mean for us now? One big thing that is different for us compared to Zechariah and the Jewish people in his time is that we are on the other side of the cross and we look back on Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection. We have a much clearer view of what kind of Messiah he actually is. Now how we apply all this is going to look different for each one of us. We all are involved in some sort of struggle in our daily lives. Sometimes peace in the midst of the struggles we face seems really far off. Maybe you struggle with physical, mental, emotional health. Maybe you struggle with sin that just seems to cling so closely. Or maybe you're grappling with the consequences of past sins. Maybe you struggle to love your friends, family, and coworkers in ways that you feel you should. Maybe some of your closest relationships are strained. Maybe you struggle to see how you're going to provide for yourself or your family financially over the coming year. Maybe work is just really hard. Maybe Christmas stresses you out because you want to have joy and be generous, but deep down you feel you're exhausted, depressed, and selfish. Maybe you're struggling to hold on to the truths of the gospel 
and you feel you can't go on believing. And likely, given that we're all complex individuals, it's a combination of many of these things and more. I know if you saw a window into my life at home, or even into my own mind, you would see that I'm a messed up individual, struggling with many of the things I've just listed off. And as terrible as this list of things may seem, later in the New Testament, in the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he describes that our struggle isn't against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. <clears throat> we do struggle with things in this world we can see, but behind all these struggles are deep spiritual powers and our own sinful nature, as we've talked about. <clears throat> it, excuse me. It may feel like life is simply unwinnable sometimes. <clears throat> but though we shouldn't minimize these struggles we go through in this world on a daily basis, we can have deep and eternal peace in the fact that Christ has ultimately conquered all things, including difficulties in this world and the evil in the spiritual world. And he's at the right hand of God, praying his heart out for us as we struggle. On top of all this, he has given the Holy Spirit to all of us who believe, so that we have his personal presence living inside of us. Jesus himself said clearly in John 16 that his disciples would have trouble in the world, but he reassured them afterward that he had overcome the world and that they could take courage. He was probably referring partly to the fact that many of them would be persecuted and even killed for their faith in him. Now, I don't believe we should go to great lengths. Oh, thank you. I don't believe we should go to great lengths to compare our situation with other Christians from ages past or in other parts of the world today. But regardless of what life situation we find ourselves in, Jesus simply calls us to follow him and be faithful, walking with his spirit. And that one day that may lead to persecution for following Christ, though some of us may have even already experienced that. And we are encouraged to pray for those who are being persecuted. But like the Israelites from the Old Testament and the Jews in Zechariah's time, we must not get distracted from the fact that our greatest need for forgiveness and peace with God has been met by our hero Jesus as we look back on the cross. The war we have been fighting with God since the beginning of time has been won for us by Jesus, God himself in the flesh. And he stands with his loving arms open wide asking only that we lay down our weapons and come to him for forgiveness. If he can bring forgiveness to this dark heart, he can do anything, and he will help me to endure any struggle I have here on earth, walking with me and giving me his peace in the process. And he will do the same for you too. It's true, Jesus will ultimately one day end all our temporary earthly struggles, but He's a better Messiah than just that. 
He has already won the victory in our struggle against sin and death because that's ultimately what he came to do. Lastly, thinking again of the word peace in reference to peace with God, it's not some hollow, temporary, formalized peace. The peace he offers us with him is so much more than this. It's rich, it's abundant, it's gracious, it's generous, it's merciful, and full of goodness. And as Jesus, it has Jesus at the center, our living access to our Father God. This peace is where we belong. In Ephesians 2, we read that Jesus himself is our peace. And in verse 68 of this passage, Jesus is the one who visited, stayed, and redeemed his people. In verse 71, he's the one who saved us from our enemies. In verses 72 and 73, he's the one who fulfilled all God's ancient promises, including the ones to Abraham and his family. In verse 74, he's the one who delivered us to serve God all our days in holiness and righteousness without fear. And looking at verses 77 to 79, He's the one who forgave us and took our sin upon himself, who was the light in our darkness, and who guides our feet into the way of peace. The gospel at its foundation is mercy, which means not getting what we deserve. But it's also much more than this. It's grace, which is getting what we don't deserve, all these blessings in Christ, and ultimately Christ himself. Let's not be content with anything less than this, and let's not substitute a temporary peace for the eternal one that Christ offers us. Just as Zechariah and the people around him were awaiting the first coming of the Messiah, Jesus, we here today can wait expectantly and patiently for the second coming of Jesus. We wait for him to rise like the sun and chase away all the darkness and evil in our hearts and in the world around us, when he will take us by the hand and guide us into the eternal peace with God our Father that we were created for. And as we wait, we can ask our Father God to fill us with his spirit so that we can fix our eyes on Jesus, the true source of peace, the Prince of Peace, who is in the process of transforming our hearts and minds. And as we look to Jesus, through him, we can live a life full of peace and hope, joy, and love. We can be his hands and feet, doing good to those around us, loving them as he would, bringing his light into the darkness. This is a high calling, but through Jesus, the Prince of Peace, all things are possible. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word and this beautiful poem that Zechariah spoke more than 2,000 years ago and that it still is so rich and abundant for us today. Father, thank you that you have given us an eternal peace through Jesus and that we can have this peace every day as well. Please guide our feet into this way of peace. Thank you for being the light 
in our darkness and teach us and encourage us and help us to be light to people around us, Jesus, this Christmas season and for the rest of our lives. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.